From WXXI News, this is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Our connection this hour will be made about six hours from now at East High School with an event called Excellence Through Equity, Creating Schools That Serve All Children Well. East has brought in Dr. Pedro Noguera, a distinguished professor of education at UCLA and really a recognized scholar in the field. And they've, they're going to try to address a vital question. How do you create schools that don't just favor the wealthy and the privileged? How do you really create equity? Among advanced industrial nations, the United States has become the most unequal, essentially. That means that an individual's life chances are more dependent on their parents' income than in other countries. That doesn't mean that there aren't outliers, but for example, did you hear what Ben Carson said about poverty this week? More on that in a moment. And if we're going to close the so-called achievement gap, how can we do that? What have we learned about standardized tests and a focus on test scores? What other ideas are out there to create more equity? We have a lot to discuss, and our guests include Dr. Nagara, who comes to us again from UCLA, great to have you here, and thank you so much for joining us on the program, Dr. Nagara. Great to be with you. Also here is uh, Sean Nelms, who's an associate professor at the Warner School of Education at the University of Rochester. He's the superintendent at East High and co-chair of the Greater Rochester Initiative for Children's Social and Emotional Health Implementation Task Force. Sean, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Evan. Long time no see. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, six o'clock, free and open to the public tonight, yes? Absolutely. Okay. encourage everyone to come on. Six o'clock tonight. You're not just aiming at educators. You're, not, you're aiming at everybody tonight. That's right. Uh, poverty and equity is a community-wide issue, and we want to have the community they represent it. Um, Dr. Naguer, did I hear you re- react a little bit when I mentioned what Ben Carson said about <laughs> poverty this week? Yeah, I, I saw the quote too. It's, it's, you know, someone like him should certainly know better because he grew up poor, right? And well, so. l- l- let me just interrupt and say, <laughs> if you missed it, just because I, mean, I guess we'll start there. Let's just listen to what Ben Carson had to say about poverty this week. I think poverty to a large extent is also a state of mind. You take somebody who has the right mindset you can take everything from them and put them on the street. And I guarantee you, in a little while, they'll be right back up there. Now, he didn't say there are outliers. He says it is largely just a state of mind. Dr. Nagara, what do you think? So I'm going to actually speak about this point tonight. And I would, I would say he's partially right. That is that there are um, psychological, you know, cultural, social conditions that are associated with poverty. But if you don't understand the, the way in which our economy creates poverty, that it's structural, right? That is that that it built into the way our society has operated historically. We've created certain communities that become obsolete where there are no jobs. And so no matter what your state of mind is, if there's no job, <laughs> you're, you're going to still be broke. And, and that's what he doesn't seem to um, acknowledge in that quote. I had a conversation recently with a, a prominent local conservative, and this was not sort of on the record, so I won't mention who I was talking to, but what they, what they told me was their concern is, you know, often conservatives, but, but not just conservatives, sometimes will hold up these outlier success stories, the up-by-your-bootstrap stories, and they'll say, look, see, anybody can do it if you just want to, as opposed to saying that, by and large, those stories are harder to come by, especially when there aren't jobs and there aren't opportunities. Is there a danger to overplaying those unlikely success stories and creating this idea that, well, anybody can do it if they just try? Well, not entirely. I mean, I think positive deviance is an important way of understanding what it might take to enable more people to escape poverty. Both Sean and I have that experience in our own backgrounds. So there are living examples of people who come from poor backgrounds who've been able to use education and experience other opportunities. It doesn't mean that just because we did it that it's easy for anybody else to do it. And if you don't understand the, the barriers that are in the way that, that make it more likely that people will also stay poor, then you're not going to 
change the outcomes for more greater number of people. So before the hour began, I, I asked Dr. Nagara, who has done so much work on so many different angles related to these issues, you know, where he kind of wanted to go tonight. One of the things you mentioned was it's, it's good to try to contextualize how Rochester compares to what you see across the nation, for example. And from so far, what have you seen in, the, in that regard? So I say uh, Rochester fits a pattern we see um, across the country, which is wherever poverty is concentrated, we see schools failing. And that's the connection that we don't make. A lot of times we, th- we blame the teachers. We, we assume, well, we just have lazy teachers. If we could get the right people, we could turn this around. Or we'll blame um, the, the, the school board. They're dysfunctional. And it might be that there's room for blame for lots of ple- people. But what we don't understand is what's the connection with poverty? Why is it that every place in America where poverty is concentrated, we see the same pattern? And then this is the other question. Where are the places where that's not occurring? And what's different? Uh, And I'll name some places tonight where schools are serving poor kids and serving them extremely well and getting great results. What's different about those places is they found a way to bring a much more integrated approach to educating kids that addresses not simply the academic needs, which is critical, but it's also addressing health, nutrition, the social needs kids come with. When you say there are places where that's happening, are you talking entire cities or is it a school within a city, a couple of schools, a series of schools? Typically, it's a school within a city as opposed to a city as a whole. Um, There aren't many examples we could say this whole district, urban district, has got it right, except if you go to Toronto, they've got it right. (laughs) Oh, interesting. And, and, you know, one of the things we don't look at is a place like Canada, even though it's our neighbor and actually pretty close to Rochester. If you want to find the urban district that's made the greatest progress for the longest period of time in in improving its schools, you go to Toronto. Why why is that? Because they take a very different approach. Um, the, the, The approach we've used in this country has been to blame schools to use pressure and threats as a way to try to drive improvements. It will threaten to fire the teachers, threaten to fire the principal, the superintendent. And what that creates is this cycle of failure. Um, Toronto's approach is capacity building. If a school is struggling, the Ministry of Education comes in and says, hmm, based on our data, it looks like you need help in math. We're going to send some people who know math to work with your teachers. Or it looks like you need some social workers in here to help you with kids who are in poverty. That is, rather than being there to threaten and pressure, they're actually there to help and to build the capacity of that school to meet the needs of the kids. And that's really not happening anywhere in this country? No. Uh, California is beginning to try to move in that direction. But here's the problem. Every state department of education in the country, including New York's, has been much more focused on compliance, not focused on capacity building. So, you know, Rochester has several schools in receivership. Uh Let's look at what the record has been. What has the state of New York done to help those schools to get better? The record is poor. If you look at Roosevelt, which has been under receivership longer than any other school system in New York, they've done nothing to help Roosevelt. It is still a disaster. And I blame the state is as much at fault as as Roosevelt. Now, Dr. Nagara, every time we talk about the quality of education, how to improve it, et cetera, money comes up. And we hear from some of our listeners, and we may hear from them this hour who say, well, we're already spending X. We're spending so much per pupil. Rochester is spending so much. And, you know, it's not working. We heard it at a forum yesterday. Someone said that, you know, they're being, we're always accused of, quote, throwing money at schools, et cetera. How do you you sort of take that kind of criticism? Are we overspending on people? How do we start to address 
kind of you know return on investment and how much we're spending? Well, anyone who's looked closely at it knows there is a lot of waste. There is a lot of um, uh, there are a number of initiatives that are uh, where a great deal of money spent and they don't produce results. Now, it doesn't mean money doesn't matter, right? Um, all you have to do is look at what we spend on affluent children. You'll see money. We're spending way more money because uh, we're one of the few countries in the world that consistently spends more money to educate affluent children than poor children. Most other countries don't do it that way. That perpetuates these disparities. But money only matters if it's invested properly. Uh, if we look at what's happening, the work going on at East High School right now, what we're seeing is there is a, a significant investment of resources the, the question is, do those resources address the critical needs of kids? And if they do, then I would say that gives us a clearer picture of what it actually costs. If we look at some of the best charter schools in the country, we'll see they're spending much more money on the kids than the public schools are. Now, you just said the words charter schools, <laughs> and then we could probably just blow up the phones for the rest of the hour there. It is way too uh, reductive and oversimplifying for me to ask you, how do you feel about charter schools? But but let me ask you how you feel about charter schools. <laughs> so, I, you know, I'm agnostic on it. Um, not entirely. Um, I was a charter school authorizer. I was a SUNY trustee, and I chaired the committee that authorized over 100 charter schools in the three years I served. Um, and so I'm aware that there are many charter schools out there that are excellent, that are doing a great job. What we don't look at is what's the impact those charter schools start to have on the public system. Because what often happens is the most motivated parents get their kids into the charter schools. And what you end up with is the public schools being left with the most disadvantaged kids. The kids whose parents don't even know there's a charter, aren't in a lottery. Um, the homeless kids, the uh, parents who are undocumented. And when schools end up with those kinds of inequities, it becomes very, very hard to change results. So I would, I'm, what I, I'm concerned about is the lack of, of any kind of policy that's examining how charter schools are impacting the system. I'm also concerned that we're not taking the lessons that are coming from our best charter schools and applying them in the public schools. One of the advantages that charter schools have is the flexibility from government regulations. Well, let's free up many more public schools so that they don't have to be saddled with those kinds of regulations. Sure. I mean, if if charter schools can do things that their public counterparts cannot, then I sort of think, what's the point? If they're, if they're going to be a laboratory to fix things, but you can't take those things and move them over, then it is sort of a what the point. But, but you mentioned you kind of helped authorize 100 you Over any, 100. you have any regrets about that? I, I did at the end. That's why I resigned. Oh, I did. resigned very publicly. Um, and and I, because it was very clear to me that they were we, we were using charters to compete and to undermine public schools, which was never the intention. The intention with charter schools was that they would become uh, laboratories of innovation that would help to improve public schools. But the problem is you have a mindset that this is about competition. And when there's competition, there are losers. And the losers always are the, the most disadvantaged kids. And that's what I saw occurring in several parts of the states, including Rochester. Joanne on Twitter says, Dr. Uh, Noguera is on point right now. And uh, you can see why uh, Sean Nelms and, uh, and, and uh, his colleagues wanted to bring in uh, Pedro Noguera, who is speaking tonight. Sean, again, why don't you tell us what's going on tonight? And uh, while I remind our listeners, if you want to call the program this hour with comments or questions as we talk about equity in education, it's 844-295-TALK, toll free. 844-295-8255 or 263-WXXI if you're in Rochester, 263-9994. Sean, what's coming up tonight? Absolutely. So the Warner uh, School of Education at the University of Rochester has a new center. It's a Center for Urban Education Success, or CUES. And um, this is our 
first public event. And the purpose of Cues is to look at school systems throughout the country and to work with exceptional educators and experts like Dr. Nagara to find out how do we improve the lives of not just the kids at East, but students throughout Rochester and um, throughout the country. And so Q's will um, have its first event tonight with a panel discussion, a keynote by Dr. Nagara, and a few comments from the audience as, as well. It, but it's really critical that we see the issues around equity and opportunity gaps as a community-wide issue. And so you'll have some very prominent community leaders there um, and uh, just to engage in, in a dialogue and to start another discussion around how do we support and align university partnerships with public schools, how do um, private uh, um, people with private interests support public schools. But the most important and most critical takeaway is what has to happen next to ensure that our students have great opportunities to be successful academically in schools and, and life beyond high school. And you've got a panel discussion that follows his talk, is Absolutely, that right? Absolutely, yep. There is a, there's a few representatives from the, uh, this is a parent, there's a professor, someone from the University of Rochester, um, there is a New York State regent who oversees some policy for New York State. Um, and so it's, it's a really eclectic group of individuals who will respond to Pedro's uh, talk, and then we will have some uh, open discussion for uh, the community. Six o'clock tonight. Uh, let me get our first comment uh, from uh, the audience well, besides Joanne, who said Pedro's on point. Uh, <laughs> are, uh, there's a community group that's formed in, in recent months, maybe about a year, a year or two now, called Pitch Forward out in Pittsford, which is a, a suburban community, uh, mostly white, wealthy, and they have been focused on, you know, celebrating diversity and, and trying to, to make sure there is uh, opportunity inclusion in their own community. And they write to the program and say, what's the role of surrounding communities in the suburbs in equity, th- in the quest for equ- equity through excellence? Well, good question, uh, because part of what's the problematic here is that we have hyper-segregated schools, um, and we've created these boundaries that make it very difficult to create schools that are integrated by race and class. And we know now that when we do that, that we made the greatest gains in this country when the country was committed to integrating its schools in the 1970s. If you look at the data, what it shows is that the gaps in achievement were actually closing, and that's because education policy wasn't simply focused on standardized tests, it was focused on compensating for poverty. This was the whole reason why ESSA, which is now called Every Student Succeeds, um, was adopted, enacted into law, was enacted as a part of the Civil Rights Initiative by Lyndon Johnson, who was himself a former teacher. Uh, in South Texas, who understood that poor kids need more than simply um, higher standards. They need help to address, the, to meet those standards. So um, I would say to the, the, the caller or the writer from the suburbs that um, while we may not be able to change these district lines right now, we do need to look at ways to get support for what happens in Rochester. Um, we know that a city like this impacts the whole economy, that many people who live in the suburbs come to the city to work. Well, the schools are a vital part of that social infrastructure. Um, and you can't have uh, a city where, where large numbers of people are out of work, where there's crime and, 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 and poverty, and not expect that's not going to affect quality of life in the suburbs, too. And so what we need is the ways in which to get resources from the suburbs, build stronger ties between schools and communities and schools in Rochester so that kids are getting of all kinds, an education that's really preparing them for life in a world that's going to be much different from the world that most of us were educated in. Do we need more buy-in from the suburbs about the idea that, you know, well, maybe a Wake County, North Carolina, 
you know, um, a willingness to have more of a countywide school district. Or I, I know that sort of starts war in a lot of communities when they hear about that. I mean, we've heard from parents who said, look, I moved here because X, Y, Z, you know, because my school's quality, my kids, I, I want them here. And uh, so do we need more of a willingness in the suburbs to say if that's better for these kids, it's better for the entire community, we, we should be more open to a very different educational model? Realistically, I don't see how we do that right now because I think that um, the, the, the politically the will's not there. The courts have made it very difficult to change these um, these boundaries. So I don't see that as something that's going to occur in, in the near future. Um, what I focus on instead is, well, how do we get, if we're not willing to, to support integrating our schools, how do we create uh, the conditions in a place like Rochester that would make uh, uh, the middle class and the white middle class want to choose to move back in. Uh, I was shown uh, the School of the Arts today, and they say, well, that's an integrated school. Uh, middle class people, white, white kids are going to the School of the Arts right here in Rochester. Why? It's a great school. It's a high-quality school. Well, that's what's going to drive integration is quality. People have never put – middle class people – will never put their kids in bad schools, <laughs> willingly, <laughs> right? And you can't force them to. So the only way they will choose those schools, if those, they are sure those schools are good schools. But here's sort of an interesting thing I want to ask Sean Nelms about as the superintendent at East. If you just kind of drive around the streets near East, I don't know that I, I don't know if it's gentrifying. Yeah, I don't know if that's the right word, Sean, but... Um, the the prices of housing is certainly going up. Um, the, the streets are there's wonderful neighborhoods not far away at all. And for whatever our listeners' idea for East has been over the years or the area that it's in, you know there's a, a it's it's an area that at least from my perspective, tell me if I'm wrong, is quote unquote improving, changing. You have nice area, you know. There's a lot of nice streets. You know, is that happening? Um, is there diversity in what is, is sort of coming in when it comes to that housing stock? And are, are they sending the kids there? So I would say that less than 10% of our students come from the neighborhood. And so a critical okay. issue with, right. um, with, with East and with many schools throughout the city is that the students who attend those schools are not from the community. And often you have students uh, bust across uh, communities uh, attending schools that may be worse than the schools that are in, in their actual community. And so mm. I know that the district right now is is looking at um, their school choice par- uh, policy and process to support um, growing idea around community and neighborhood type schools. Um, but but for East, that's not our reality. We get students from all over the city. See, I didn't know all this. Mm-hmm. Thank you for, yeah, for yeah. catching me up. To st- so where do all those families send their kids so, to? So they, they either, it depends. I mean, some of them are out in private schools. Some okay. choose charter or some choose select schools um, that are successful. But not many are going to East. But not many are going to East. Okay. And, and that's and that's not because of, you know, the involvement in the University of Rochester. It's just, it's a historic um, issue in Rochester that the the high schools are choice schools and so kids have a choice to to choose them. Um, but again, if you only have two or three high performing schools in the city, then uh, there's not a real choice for. for I families. just thought maybe those neighborhoods would be more choosing East. I mean, is, do you think that will start to change? Well, that now? that is the idea. So okay. last week at the board, they passed a resolution um, with that involves School 33, which is a which is on Webster Avenue, which is near East. It's a large high school, and there's six elementary schools within our community. And the idea is that we would create a a partnership between 33 and E, so that students who enter in pre-K or first or second grade, um, when they get to sixth grade, they would start to funnel themselves into E's for those who don't choose to go to another uh, select school. And, and for us, that's critically important. It allows us to look at resources and ways that we can bring health uh, resources, dental, uh, mental health support, 
at an earlier age and then track the progress of those students throughout an entire system. And when you think about the average uh, suburban school within Monroe County, the moment a child enters pre-K, they know the middle school they're going to attend, they know the high school that they're going to attend. So there is a commitment from the family, a commitment from the school to invest in them. In Rochester, it's very difficult to establish that connection without having a pre-K through 12 cradle to career type of uh, pipeline or partnership. This past fall and winter, WXXI rolled out a reporting series called Degrees of Diversity, in which we looked at the lack of diversity on teaching staffs all across our area, not just in urban districts, but but everywhere. In fact, Dr. Nagara, there's 19 school districts in Monroe County. Four don't have a single African-American teacher out of three to 400 teachers in any school, uh, and uh, four more have, have one African-American teacher in the entire district. Um, the, and that's the, those are all suburban districts. Um, and of course, in the city of Rochester, it, it's more students of color, but still, you know, there's still a significant gap when it comes to teachers of color. And you raised an interesting point before the hour began. Uh, it's important to know that, but it's also important to know why that matters. Why does it matter? Well, there was recently a study done at Johns Hopkins University. And uh, what's interesting about this study is the methodology. That is, they simply looked at large data sets and they, they asked this question, how does the diversity of the teaching population impact student outcomes? And what the study found is that not only are black students particularly benefit from having at least one black teacher, it impacts everything from their grades to their graduation rates to um, discipline patterns, but other kids benefit too. Uh, this is what, the, I mean, again, they didn't go into classrooms. They just looked at the data. That is, that, that the benefits to all kids. Now, we what we need is to then go into classrooms. Why and how? Clearly, it's not all black. This is not to suggest that all black teachers are good teachers by any means. But it is to say that when there's diversity on the staff, you bring a different set of, um, of, of life experiences, a different uh, way of understanding the needs of kids. Um, many of our kids are very relationship dependent. That is, they will work for teachers they know care about them, and they will choose not to work as hard for teachers they think don't like them or don't believe in them. And uh, when, when you have a more diverse teaching staff, you increase the likelihood that those strong relationships will, will be fostered in school. So I would say that um, this is a very important issue for the suburbs as well, because there are kids that are going to be in a society where they're going to be interacting with people from different backgrounds. And the only kinds of people they've ever worked with and learned from are people who are very much like themselves, they'll be at a huge disadvantage. I know, Sean, we've talked about this, but why don't you weigh in and tell us uh, the progress that you're seeing, if you're seeing progress on that issue for you and for Rochester. Absolutely. So, so recruitment for us of, of, of diverse staff members is, has not been an issue. And I think it's because people are attracted to the project. And the support we get um, throughout the county hasn't been an issue because of that. But, but I have the unique opportunity to have taught in a suburban district and to be an administrator in two and also a teacher and an administrator in the city. And I will tell you that um, diversity is, is critical. If you think about the University of Rochester, there are many individuals who discuss gender equity and race equity and, and all type of bias. And so from that experience, I'm a little bit more conscious about things I say and the way I frame things and the things I, how I respond to different, um, to different occurrences now because I'm in an environment where those those norms are being challenged, and they're being challenged respectfully. Um, so you, you, you compare that to a school. If you're in a school and you have issues around gender or gay, lesbian, and straight, or you have issues around race, and there's no one on this faculty or staff that feels strong enough, 
to challenge those status, challenge that status quo, and to create conditions that are conducive for students and teachers and families, then those same negative experiences continue. And so I think some of the added advantage of having diversity in our schools is that it creates a different perspective and hopefully it creates someone who's willing to dissent and to challenge um, conditions that lead um, to negative results for our students and our staff. And so um, just my experience at the University of Rochester in the last two years and their partnership with East has really taught me um, to think differently about diversity in ways and, and my role in being a guardian of equity and making sure that all students and all staff are equally represented. Again, in schools, when you don't have the diversity visible or you don't have a group of individuals who are courageous enough to have those tough conversations with ignorant colleagues, then our students suffer. And um, not just black and brown students, but white students suffer even more because they get these perceptions uh, ingrained in them as youth, and it's hard for them to, to, to change that as adults. So I think to Pedro's point, it, in, it impacts all students, and it, and it creates a different fabric for our country when we have these diversity, this diverse thought and people who are true champions and guardians of equity represented in our schools. We're talking about equity in education and excellence through equity, creating schools that serve all children well. That's the subject for an event tonight, and it starts at 6 o'clock, free and open to the public. It's at East High School, and you're hearing Sean Nelms, who is the superintendent of East, and Dr. Pedro Noguera, who's a sociologist and a distinguished professor of education at UCLA. They're our guests for the hour. Uh, Carl and Amanda, I'll get you your emails after our break. So we got some emails. Lots of ways to interact with the program. You can email me, edawson, at wxxi.org. You can find us on Twitter, at Evan Dawson, or the producer, Megan Mack, at Media, Or you can call the program toll-free, 844-295-TALK. It's 844-295-8255 or 2 263-WXXI if you're in Rochester, 263-9994. Amanda's question is on standardized tests. So let's we'll start with that after our only break of the hour on Connections. Coming up in our second hour, what is the microbiome? That's a term you've heard plenty of times. And maybe if you're like me, you think it simply means the gut. Well, that's kind of a very basic start, but it's more complicated and much more important than that. The Rochester Academy of Medicine will be hosting an event titled The Microbiome, a Lifetime Overview in Health and Disease. So what exactly is it? Delve into it next hour. Welcome back to Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Amanda wants to know what our guests think about the value of, or otherwise, of standardized tests. Now, it's a general question, but um, I'm sure that's one that you've written about, thought about a lot, Pedro. So we'll start there. Uh, absolutely. You know, the, the first thing I have to say always is assessment is critical part of education. Have you, to have assessment. You have to have assessment. You have to have evidence. The kids are learning. We need to know um, what they know and, and are they, in fact, being prepared and is what we're doing effective and meeting their needs? So I want to just establish that. The idea of a standardized test, though, is, is problematic because if you understand the way these tests are designed, they're designed uh, based on a norm. Uh, uh, that, that is that if, if too many kids pass a, qu a question, they get rid of the question, right? Um, and what we know is that what's driving these patterns in terms of achievement on these tests is family income and parent education. And uh, what that suggests is that built into the test themselves is a deep degree of cultural bias. Uh, and all you have to do is spend a little time looking at the questions and you start to see how it occurs, right? That is that if you were, if you were a kid from the inner city who's never been to the ocean, who's never um, been on a boat, who's, um, you know, there's, there are, there are, there's information that's built into those tests a lot of times that's totally outside of your experience. 
Um, and so the tests a lot of times don't accurately reflect what a child actually knows, what their ability is. We don't know, for example, did the kid, was the kid hungry the day they took the test? Was the kid tired? Um, was, um, was this a typing problem? Because we, these tests are increasingly done on computer. Uh, there's so much about the way we use the test that's wrong. What we should be doing is assessing kids to diagnose learning needs, Right? and then making sure that we use the results from the assessments to address the need. What we do now is we use the test to rank kids and to rank schools. Think about how crazy this is. If you went to the doctor and the doc, they'd run a series of assessments on you and said, oh, Evan, you're sick, and say, okay, what's next? Say, well, we know now you're sick. We don't do anything about it, though, because that's what we've been doing in education. We rank schools, we rank kids, and we don't say this is what that child needs to move from being low to improving. We use test as a weapon, and we should be using it as a tool. So, so to call back to something you mentioned earlier in the hour here, that's what Toronto is doing, but then they take it a step further and they say, okay, here's the ranking, here's the assessment, but now what's the solution as opposed to weaponize it against them? That's right. That's right. And if you look at, again, if you look at the international rankings, Canada is number two in the world on, on the PISA rankings, right, which is the, the international assessments uh, in math, reading, science. Why aren't we learning from their approach, right? And, and, and so, again, it, it, here's what's different about Toronto. They do look at the data. They look at the assessments. And then they start asking different questions. Say, look, we're noticing lots of kids are failing ninth grade math. You know what that means? The teachers are need, need help in ninth grade math. The, 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 the performance of the kids is a direct reflection of the strengths of the teachers. Now, that's where it gets um, dicey because people will use that as a way to blame teachers. No, it's not about blame. It's about then saying, well, what do these teachers need to know so they'll be better at teaching math to these kids? Dr. Nagara, uh, Ken Robinson, a British uh, educational consultant who's done, uh, he's smiling. I, I think the whole world by law has seen Ken Robinson's uh, and if they haven't, they TED shouldn't. talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that he has argued in separate talks is that if we were designing classrooms from scratch, which I think we're going to do a program on that this summer. If we were designing schools from scratch, would they look the same? Would they? Would you have rows of desks? And and by the way, I would love for you guys to say, Evan, you haven't been in a school in a while because we're, we're breaking out of that model a little <laughs> not bit. Enough. But not enough. Okay. okay. Uh, would they look the same way? And, and does that hinder? And do we need to change our approach to simply how we set schools up? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you think about it, anybody who has a child at home, a small child, knows that kids are naturally curious. The most common question coming from any three-year-old is why. <laughs> that is a higher order question. They want to know why things are the way they are, how things work. That's the question that kids are asking. Schools should be feeding that curiosity. We should be getting kids to be more and more curious so they become independently motivated learners. Our schools don't do that. What happens, the longer you're in school, the less interested in learning you become. You become interested in your grades, maybe, and in, and, in, and in preparing for the test, maybe, if you still buy into it. But to read on your own, to, do, to go out and to want to apply what you've learned independently, that's not what's nurtured in our schools. And I don't want to indict, because there are still teachers out there who do an amazing thing, so I don't want to, to be too broad in this indictment. But I would say that if we were to design schools differently, 
we would, our schools would look a lot more like the Montessori schools and the Reggio Emilia schools, which tap into the natural curiosity of children. And those schools are much better at helping kids to become self-disciplined and self-motivated, which is what we should be after. I, I think even if we did more of that, we have this idea that as, as kids get older, we have to get a little bit more regimented or, you know, so maybe we would do that at a younger age <laughs> in the same way that we think, well, you know, play and active learning is just for little kids. And, and then we'd get more serious as, as it goes on. I, not necessarily. I think okay. it, it definitely has to change and, and respond to the developmental needs of kids. But, you know, older kids can be as curious. Um, I mean, my, I was, my daughter went to school, School of the Future in Manhattan. It's a performance assessment school, one of 36 in New York State. Every kid works on a project in each grade that they work on in a different subject area. So the sub, they have to do the same regions as everybody else does, but they work with a teacher in on that project. In ninth grade, my daughter does a, in her history assignment, she does decide she's going to do a project comparing the Roman and the Inca Empire. She has to understand how these empires rose, why they eventually collapsed. She has to have multiple sources. By the end of ninth grade, she's produced a 25-page research paper with multiple sources. Then she has to present that work and there are only three grades that are possible. Distinction, competent, or do-over, right? Failure, not an option. Failure means you got to do it over, right? Well, what happens if you can write a 25-page research paper in the ninth grade? I think you'd be ready for college. And, and, and because you have this kind of direct support from the teacher who is working with you in an iterative process where you turn in work, the teacher Re, um, gives you feedback, you revise, revise, resubmit. That's the way you produce better work. That's also the way you produce kids who are more willing to invest time, who have that grit that we hear so much about, who have perseverance and resilience. And what do you say to those who are really anti-assessment, who think, yeah, you know, we're so addicted to standardized test and assessment to the detriment of actual learning that assessment, you know, that is essentially just gets in the way because we're so addicted to it. What do you say? To I that think there are, we have to be open to creative uses of assessment and, and just keep in mind that assessment should be a tool. And if it is used as a tool, then I think most people, even people who have become so um, adamantly opposed, would recognize, oh, it doesn't have to be the way it's being done now, uh, where we, we spend so much of the kids' time preparing for these tests that mean very little and bore these kids to death. And uh, that, to me, is 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 a real unfortunate consequence of our desire. See, because No Child Behind asked a, a really important question. Where's the evidence that kids have learned? And we need to always ask that question, all kinds of kids. But we also then have to realize their performance on a standardized test is not good enough evidence. We want to know, can those kids write? Across the country today, six over 60% of the kids graduated from our high schools are in remedial courses in college. Even when they pass those tests, they're still not ready for college, level writing or math. Why? Because they're good at taking tests. They're not so good at writing. Let me ask Superintendent Nelms, how do you try to set a culture at East where testing and assessment matters, but it isn't the only thing that matters, if, if that makes sense? I, I think one of the, um, the points that Pedro made about Toronto is Fullen's work around shifting schools from an individual quality towards group quality. And group quality um, demands that we all share a common set of assumptions and ideas around a certain principle, and then we, we coordinate our work around that. And so at ease, it's, it's really about getting students prepared for life beyond uh, high school, during high school, but also life beyond the high school. And so if we make that our central premise, and that's our assumption and our principle, then 
the assessments become for learning, not of learning. Of meaning past tense and it's on old data and question if the kids even taught, if the teacher taught that or the kids learned it. Before learning gives us a new starting point. So if you assess for learning at the end of ninth grade, then you have a better idea of what it takes the kids in tenth grade, and then you align your curriculum and your instruction around that. So, so and, and that and that takes some reprogramming because for years kids have been told that assessment reigns supreme, and teachers have been told that if your kids don't meet certain benchmarks, then you're deemed ineffective or developing. And so, getting teachers to truly trust that group quality matters, developing common assessments, and looking at common curriculum, instructing the same is 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 a exercise that's mutually beneficial has been tough for some staff members and for kids to really believe that and for parents who've been misled that they're going to a school and a school's deemed as failing now my my kid's stuck in this elementary school from pre-k to five and and every year i'm told the school is failing and the teachers aren't effective it it creates a different reality for our our kids our teachers and and our students so creating a new thought process around that has been challenging but I tell the teachers, if we focus on group quality, let individual quality go a bit, then it's much easier for me to, to defend your efforts publicly. Um, when we have all ninth grade kids not doing well academically, we can say it could be the curriculum. So let's focus on that. But we have half the kids doing well and half the kids not doing well. It's easy for people from the outside to say it's because those two, those two teachers were ineffective. Mm-hmm. And so group quality becomes an, an essential part of it. And that's in that continuum of building capacity within our schools. Can I ask you, Sean, what, what do you think of the opt-out movement? I, I, um, I'm supposed to be politically correct on your show, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I, then I ask you a good question. You then ask good. a good question. I, I don't understand it, to be honest with you. I, I think that um, I think if we have to do it as a state and there's lessons to be learned from it, I'm interested in knowing um, how kids compare across the state when they have similar demographics. So you take a kid who's in a school that entered at a certain reading level and how they progress against their peers, something I'm interested in knowing. Um, but my, my own child, last year as a seventh grader, came home and said, I have to take these tests. Can I opt out? And I said, no, you're not opting out. And she goes, well, all they do is determine who gets AIS or academic intervention support. So she had she's already <laughs> a keen to the point that the yeah. assessments – determine what type of supports kid gets the next year and how it impacts her teachers. My one son who was sick one morning said, I have to go to school because if I don't do well, my teacher's going to get a bad grade. So like, if that's if we're shifting to that as being the central focus of assessment, then we've, we've missed a target. But, but, but I do think that um, if the assessments are fair and it's for learning, not of learning, I think that the, uh, the, it's, it's a critical piece. But if if there's a misalignment between the community's needs, the state's intentions on these tests, then I can truly understand why parents would choose to opt out. In an ideal world, the test would be for learning, and we would schools would get uh, credible information about and data about those kids' performance that would help us improve instruction in the next year. That would be the ideal state. I think the opt out is is a rallying cry from individuals saying we don't understand the assessments, we don't see what the alignment is, and all it does is is um, criticize teachers and make our kids sit through multiple exams. All right, Dr. Nagara? Yeah, so I, I would uh, just agree with a lot of what Sean said. I, I think what the opt-out movement has done is it, it's drawn attention to the inappropriate way in which we've been using testing in schools. Fear is not an effective motivator uh, for getting better results, but that's what we've relied on, fear and pressure. 
Uh, and, and so I want to at least acknowledge that that's been helpful. At the same time, I'm a researcher. I look at test scores because it gives me a sense of what's going on in school and where you need to um, focus your attention and your energy. So I, I would say that you still need assessment. You need to know. There needs to be some transparency. There does need to be accountability. The question is, when we have assessments, what do we do with the information? How do we use it to actually help kids and to help schools or to help teachers? Let me grab a couple of phone calls. John in Rochester first. Go ahead, John. Hey, Evan. <clears throat> I agree. You have to have equity for students, but you also have to have equity for taxpayers to do all these things. It, I'm getting a headache listening to all <laughs> the. I can just see dollar signs with all these, these uh, theories and implementations you guys have put together. And, and theoretically, they're great, but what about the mob in the form of the education unions out there that are so inflexible? In fact, I saw in Bill Maher a couple of years ago, he had Randy Weingartner, who's uh, head of one of the national unions and teachers unions, and he put her on the spot. And when he said, in New York City, way less than one percent of teachers are fired, which is unbelievable when you think that teacher, good teachers, or even adequate teachers, are at that that high of a percentage. There's got to be a certain amount of flexibility where good teachers are kept and poor teachers and mediocre teachers are let go. What are your thoughts there? Well, John, before they ask, let me, let me just follow that up because I'm, I, I guess that what I don't understand about your comment on the latter part of it is this. Uh, certainly you want to be able to dismiss employees in any organization who are really doing a poor job. But you also have to trust that you have administrators hiring good people and have a good vetting process, and it's very competitive to get teaching jobs. You really believe that there should – what's the number of teachers who should be fired on that? One percent doesn't sound like it's enough for you. Like, how many teachers should be fired? Well, it, I, I, I would say uh, the normal uh, – take a look at a normal corporation. I would think the percentage of people that are let go uh, – uh, that that might be a, a benchmark. And why don't we look at Donald Trump's cabinet? Maybe you, you think <laughs> you think American cases. corporations are like tossing off ten to twenty percent just based on work quality on an annual basis? There's no way. Oh, I didn't say ten to twenty percent. I'm well, talking not 1%. a lot more than less than one percent. I bet you it's about one amount. I bet you it is. The, the 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 point I'm getting at is the mob called these education unions uh, are killing the education system. What what? Uh, your guests, and I haven't heard them address this. Okay. We need a voucher system, and we need uh, school ch- school choice uh, and some competition to this public mob that's out there. All right, John, thank you for the phone call. Uh, educa- uh, uh, public education unions. So hey. it, it's a lot there. Um, th- th- you know, th- we sh- ideally, we, sh- we should make it much more difficult to become a teacher so that we are getting the best people into the profession, the best college students are choosing teaching. But for that to happen, teaching has to be an attractive profession. And we have to recognize right now, it's a very difficult job. There are a lot of people out there who don't want that job, not just because of the pay, but because it's emotionally and psychologically draining. So we we need to do a better job at the front end of screening people. And then we need to make it easier to to get people out of the profession who are no good at it, who don't like kids. Um, and, and, And so he's right in that we you know, there are changes needed in the way we support the profession and the way in which we um, um, support teachers. I think it's a, it's, it's a fallacy to think that there are great teachers out there waiting for a chance to get those jobs if we would just hire them. 
That's not the case right now. What we have to do is look at the conditions, the work conditions, and change those. Uh, with respect to the question about too much money, I, I always find it odd that we, we, we focus on how much money we spend on education and not on the prison system. You know, we are spending so much money to incarcerate people in a system that has totally failed because within two years, we have those same people back in prison, especially for the juveniles. So if you want to talk about waste in the public system, let's look at our criminal justice system. Uh, but, but with respect to education, I think that the investments we make have to be tied to student outcomes, and we have to figure out how do we make the profession itself much more attractive to get talented people into it. Trump. I just want to add that, uh, you know, you have labor negotiations or contracts. It's a negotiation process between the labor unions, the superintendent, the school board, and others. And so um, one, could, one could, could challenge and say we must make sure that the agreements reflect the needs of the community. That's one. Two, I would just challenge the, the characterization of our t- teachers being, of unions being mobs. Um, I think that teachers, unions, our labor unions are our partners. And um, we have to create con- working conditions for them that... Um, support them professionally uh, and personally, but also make sure the languages within those contracts are, uh, re- re- they represent the needs of the community. And so um, at East, and I know throughout Rochester, um, labor unions are partners. They are true partners. Are there mishaps and, and could there be improvements to labor contracts? Absolutely. But I, I don't want to leave with the caller um, or the callers listening thinking that, um, that the teachers or labor unions are the problem. It's, it's a systemic issue. And I was speaking out of school. So let me just say, John, uh, I, I'm going to try to do a little digging myself here because I don't know. The average larger size American company you know, that employs hundreds of people, I have no idea how many they're firing on an annual basis for poor performance. My guess was it's, it, it's not a big number. But I'll try to look it up because I don't know offhand. And, and if I'm wrong, John, you're going to hear from me and I will tell you I'm sorry about that because I'd love to be wrong. Tim in Pittsburgh. Go ahead, Tim. Yeah, and I, John, just my my blood boils sometimes because us out here in Pittsburgh, Big Brighton, HFL, Canandaigua, I don't think we consider our teachers to be part of a uh, a mob because our schools are some of the best in the country. So I don't get where he's going with that. Um, but what I originally called for was out here in Pittsburgh, out here, like I said, Brighton, HFL, Canandaigua. I realize that we're very white out here, and that is supposedly a problem. I get it, all that. But these schools basically border the city are very close. Is anyone Does anyone talk to teachers or administration out here on maybe some things they can take from Pittsburgh to the city? I, I get that the students are, are very different, come from some very different backgrounds, but we're 15 minutes away, and last time I checked, our school, our high school was ranked 60-something in the country, and nothing ever gets brought up about that, about maybe taking from others, and maybe vice versa, so there, there could be a little give and take, but I almost never hear it. I'll listen uh, offline. Thanks, Tim. Yep. Uh, Monthly, um, as superintendents, we meet monthly throughout the entire Monroe County, east side, west side, in the city, to discuss uh, current issues in education, also share best practice. And uh, we do do a lot of sharing. It may not be as public as as it should be, but we often coordinate and collaborate. In fact, tonight at East, 6 o'clock, every single superintendent from the county was invited. And I know most will be in attendance with them, either with their teams or themselves directly. And so we're looking forward to having that community-wide discussion. All right, uh, back to the phones we go. Leslie in Rochester next. Go ahead, Leslie. Hi, um, thank you for taking my call. I have three things, hopefully very quick. 
But the first is, obviously, we need assessment. You would never, ever put your child on an airplane with a pilot who had not been assessed as to their flying skills or someone who had not, you know, been assessed about their design of the flying. You need assessment. However, assessment cannot be used to grade the teachers, please. I have seen with my own, I'm a retired English teacher, by the way, and have taught elementary. I have seen with my own eyes a student run down the hall during a test. The teacher cannot say, please get in here, you will fail, and the teacher say to the student, you can't fail me, you will be fired. It does happen. I have seen with my own eyes a group of students who, who plotted to get a teacher fired by doing poorly on scores. Um, the second thing I'd like to say is that writing is, your, your guest spoke about the importance of writing in, and the fact that so many, uh, such a high percentage of people, of students, are taking remedial courses in a university. I currently work at a university in Rochester. That's true. The writing format for non-natural writers is not that difficult to teach, the actual structure. But so many times, a writing problem is really a thinking problem. And a data problem and critical thinking needs to be appreciated and is very, very difficult to assess. I have so many more things I'd like to say about the Pittsburgh and the city and the physical responsibilities of school, but I just really wanted to get those points across. Thank All right, you. Leslie, thank you for the phone call. Pedro, what do you think? Well, again, a lot there, too. I mean, I, I, I think there are a lot of factors, but I, the main thing is that using testing to diagnose learning needs, um, to provide feedback to teachers and kids about what to do differently is a better and a healthier way to approach it. With respect to the question of writing, I, I, I would say one of the big problems I see in schools across the country is kids are simply not writing very much, and they're not getting feedback. And it's because one teacher might have anywhere from 125 or more papers to grade. If you have that many papers to grade, how often are you going to sign writing? And so you, it's a structural problem in many cases. And so you have to think about, but it's one that can be solved. And I've, I can name schools that have figured it out. Because you want kids to be better writers. They have to write more frequently. They have to get more free feedback from their teachers. They have to revise their work and resubmit the work. We need to change the whole approach we take so that, um, that we can actually develop those skills. But it's a critical skill because our kids need to be able to communicate well. Okay, Sean, you want to add to that? No, I think Pedro said it, it said it right. I mean, it's it's an area that we focus on and, and making sure that me, writing is meaningful and reading is meaningful and it's um, connected and and it's engaging to the students. So it's not just about the writing task, but it's about using writing as a form of expression. All right, this is just on quick research, and so and, and thanks to a listener for sending a link here, cnsnews.com, and I, so this is maybe. I needs a little bit more vetting, but the bottom line is, what is the private sector firing rate, the layoff rate? 1.3%. Uh, government jobs, 04 to 0.5%. So, um, so, you know, I think the point of the article is, hey, the government lays off only a third of what the private sector does, but either way, it's not much on either one of them. Um, so that that's so. Thank you for that for for the submission there. And Sean Nelms, let our listeners know as we get ready to close tonight. Coming up, 6 p.m. sharp, 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 sharp at at East High School on Main Street. 
It'll be a wonderful uh, community event with our keynote, Pedro Nogueira, a panel discussion that reflects parents and, and the community. And we can't, help, we can't wait to see you there. And we're excited about having uh, and hosting Pedro this evening. Uh, Pedro, I, I really appreciate it. And we probably could have gone all day. Yeah. There's so much I here. would just say this. People, if we cared about our kids and our schools as much as we do about football, we wouldn't have a problem. We invest heavily in football. No one questions spending millions and millions of dollars on failed football teams. Sorry, Bills fans. I'm from Cleveland, Pedro. I'm from Cleveland. The Browns win one game a year and they pack it, man. Exactly. Pack it. Thank you for being here. It's great having you, Sean. Thank you so much. More connections straight ahead.